Amen. Well, today we are uh, continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 5. If you have a worship folder, reach in there and pull that study guide out, and that way you can follow along with me. And speaking of that, we've been following along with the story of the birth of the very first Christian church, which came to life in the city of Jerusalem over in the Middle East, just, just a matter of weeks after Jesus departed this earth and ascended back up into heaven. The church was born, and just like happens when a new baby is born, there was lots of activity going on, lots of excitement. There was a buzz in town. People were talking about what had happened. The church started with a bang on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and there were supernatural manifestations that occurred, and that attracted a crowd. And then Peter, you recall, stood up and preached the gospel, and 3,000 people believed the good news that day and were baptized. And then those freshly born-again believers began to live life together in community with each other and started to love their neighbors in the name of Jesus and spread the good news as God gave opportunity. That must have been thrilling to be a part of, I would think. You might recall a few days later, Peter and John, walking into the temple courtyard one day, saw a, a blind or excuse me, a lame beggar there by the entrance, and in the, by the power in the name of Jesus, they healed that man. They spoke a word and healed that man, which was awesome. That created a lot of commotion, and again, lots of people showed up to see what was going on, and Peter once again gave an explanation for the healing and a strong presentation of the gospel of Jesus, and it says that on that occasion, 5,000 men, 5,000 men responded and believed. And you know, wherever there's 5,000 men, there's at least 5,000 women and probably 15,000 kids. <laughs> and so this new church now had swelled up perhaps to upwards of 20,000 people as part of this new movement, and things were really rolling. And then we saw that the religious establishment was not at all happy with all that was going on. They were not thrilled. It felt threatening to them like they're their power was slipping away, and so they had Peter and John arrested, and they took them into custody, and they questioned them. They gave them a directive. They said, you cannot speak anymore about Jesus. You've got to stop talking about Jesus. We're ordering you to stop, to cease and desist. And then they released Peter and John, and the two apostles returned to the fellowship of believers and told everybody what had happened. And how did the church respond? Did they back away? Did they grow silent? No. They didn't become timid. They prayed and they asked God to do even more miracles and, and to give them even more boldness to continue speaking the name of Jesus. Then came the infamous Ananias and Sapphira incident. Do you remember that? And I, I think what Luke wanted us to see, among other things, is that the church is always going to face challenges on two fronts, challenges from within and challenges from without. There are always going to be people inside the church who will serve as tools of Satan to try and undermine the ministry and the message of the church, and there will always be people outside the church who will attempt to intimidate God's people into being silent, or at least softening the message a little bit. This has always been the case with the church of Jesus, and it started early on. We saw in chapter 5 
that God himself dealt with that first instance of internal challenge, which took the form of deception and corruption in the hearts of this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And God dealt with it in a way that sent an unmistakable message, right? It's as if he was saying, I want my church pure. I love my church, and I'm concerned about its witness in the community and and how it reflects my character and my glory. I want a pure church, and he did not waste any time. He administered some very severe discipline, didn't he? But instead of the church shrinking and losing steam with that, this, this severe warning actually had the opposite effect. Sure, some people stayed away out of fear, but other people were drawn to it. In fact, lots of people... And beside that, the power switch got turned back on and miraculous things started happening again. And that's where we pick up the story today, which is a story of the the growing influence of the church and then growing opposition and then growing courage. Let's pick it up in verse 12 of Acts chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And just a note there, it appears that this, this ability to perform miraculous signs, this gift, evidently was not given to all the believers, but seemed to be reserved to these 12 apostles, and later on to, to a couple of their very close associates, and that would square with what the Bible teaches about the purpose of these spiritual gifts. They were given to the apostles to validate them, to authenticate them as the ones who spoke for God. And so they were performing more signs and wonders now. It says, And they were all together in Solomon's portico, which was that huge raised platform in one section of the temple courtyard there. Verse 13, None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So there was kind of this cautious respect in the aftermath of the Ananias and Sapphira incident. Verse 14, And more than ever, Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they've stopped counting. (laughs) Lots and lots and lots of people. Verse 15, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now, I think this was probably a superstition. It doesn't say that Peter's shadow healed anybody. It only says that some people believe that it would. And and I think that this points to the fact that there's this growing recognition that these men, these apostles, possess supernatural power from God. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. So now this movement is reaching beyond the city. Bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So, the influence of the church is growing. Do you see that? More and more people are being swept in. The gospel is expanding, but corresponding with that now comes even more opposition. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with what? Filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So here again is opposition coming from the outside, like we said, from religious officials who felt 
increasingly threatened by the rapid growth of this new Christian movement, especially because of the fact that it was happening right under their noses, right in their own backyard, as it were, in the courtyard of their temple. And this time they arrest not just Peter and John, but, but apparently all 12 of the apostles and put all of them in prison. And that's the end of the movement, right? No, verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now this, you got to know, is ironic. And it shows us what a sense of humor God has because the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't think angels existed. <laughs> so God sends an angel to open up the prison doors and let the apostles out during the night. And the angel, it says, verse 20, said to them, to the apostles now, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So he releases them from prison and says, go back at it. <laughs> Keep talking about Jesus. And I love this title of the Christian faith, this life. You see, Christianity is not just a set of beliefs. It is a set of beliefs, but it's not just that. It is a lifestyle. It's the way you live. This life, it's called. Apparently, in those early days, Christianity came to be known by a couple of titles. One was the way. It was called the way. And here it's called the life. I think it's interesting that Jesus referred to himself as I am the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 21, And when they, that's the apostles, heard this from the angel, they entered the temple at daybreak, so next morning, and they began to teach. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, and evidently they came through a different entrance and didn't see what was going on over on Solomon's portico, when they came in, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel. That would be the Sanhedrin, that group of 70 men, very important, distinguished men with a lot of gravitas, kind of the supreme court of Israel. They called that group together and they sent to the prison to have them, that's the apostles, brought to them. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we've got good news and we've got bad news. The good news is we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. The bad news is when we opened the doors, we found nobody inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. What is going on here? Then someone came and told them, verse 25, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. <laughs> Interesting, the tide has kind of turned here. This Christian movement was gaining so much momentum that the people who wanted to shut it down thought twice about making a show of force in public, hauling these guys in. They tried to do it peaceably and gently. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What man's blood? Well, Jesus. You intend to 
hold us guilty for the execution of Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Yes, you strictly charged us not to teach any more in that name, but we have a mandate from God to speak the words of the gospel, and we've decided we're going to obey God rather than men, and we love their courage, right? We love this statement. It's a very strong statement. I think we probably should not view this as a blanket permission for all Christians everywhere to engage in civil disobedience whenever we feel that our rights are being trampled on. If we look more closely, we see that the scope here is limited to when the authorities make it illegal for Christians to speak about Jesus in public. It's in that case, I believe, that this example of civil disobedience would seem to apply the most. And if that ever happens, followers of Jesus should not be intimidated into silence. If, if in our country, if talking about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did, and if calling people to shift their allegiance to Jesus is ever classified as hate speech and made illegal... All of us who know Christ will have a choice, right? And I pray that we'll all be filled with the Spirit and bold and loving enough to continue speaking about Jesus, telling others that He is the only way, and then entrust our fate to God. That's what Jesus did. That's what His apostles did. In that case, I believe we must obey God rather than man and face whatever consequences come as a result. So Peter says, we must do that. Verse 30, he goes on, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Yeah, he is holding them responsible. God exalted him, that's Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now that word leader there, description of Jesus, is a very interesting word. It's translated differently in in a couple different places in the New Testament. It's translated prince. In another place in Hebrews 11, it's translated, or Hebrews 12, it's translated author. Here it's translated leader. The best word probably in our English, English language to translate this is the word hero. And Jesus is our ultimate hero. Amen? And Peter recognized that. God exalted Jesus as our hero and Savior, he says, to grant repentance to Israel. You you men have a chance to be saved if you'll repent. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And that's probably a reference to these miraculous signs that the Spirit was empowering these apostles to do. And Peter says that's God giving witness that we are speaking the truth. We are speaking His message. Well, this didn't go over well. Verse 33, when they heard this, this is the council, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But... A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, have you heard that name before? The teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So, here's this man, Gamaliel. He, is, uh, he was considered really to be a spiritual giant, uh, a living legend in Israel. 
Maybe in our day, uh, a counterpart would be someone like a Tim Keller or a John Piper, people who are held in high regard, and we give them great respect. Gamaliel was a mentor to Paul during the days when Paul was a Pharisee. And so he was a man who, when he spoke, people listened. Verse 35, and he said to them, that's to his cohorts on the council there, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis, that's the name of a fella, rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, now that's not Judas Iscariot, this is another man named Judas, a common name in that day. Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So what's Gamaliel saying here? In essence, he was pointing to instances in Israel's history where certain movements had sprung up, right? Movements led by a charismatic, dynamic leader who was passionate about a cause, who was generating all kinds of energy and attracting a following. But over time, each of these movements kind of, you know, flared out, lost steam, and eventually faded away altogether and just became a distant memory. So Gamaliel is referencing these in order to recommend a particular course of action now here in the present. Verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking, speaking of the Christian movement, is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So here's a voice of reason now, speaking to these enraged colleagues of his. Let them alone. Leave it just leave them alone. If it's not of God, it's going to peter out just like the others did. And if it is of God, you don't want to be found on the wrong side of that equation. So it says they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Does that sound familiar? So here's a second directive now. We told you before, don't speak about Jesus. And I'm telling you again. And then they let them go. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, listen, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's the name of Jesus. Evidently, these apostles viewed suffering for Jesus as a privilege, as an honor. Just like many fellow believers in our own day who live in places where it's costly to declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ and name his name. We've heard about these fellow believers, right? These brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering for Christ. And they do ask us to pray for them, but they don't ask us to pray that the persecution would cease, they ask us to pray that they would be given strength and courage to persist and stay faithful in the midst of persecution and in that way to honor Christ. And so verse 42, every day in the temple, that's the big large group, and from house to house, that's small groups, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In a word, they were 
unstoppable. Unstoppable. And today I want to just point out to you four truths in light of this story, this very inspiring story, truths that I believe if you'll take them to heart will encourage your spirit, will lift your soul, will expand your vision for how God wants to use us to spread his gospel. And I believe it will swell our faith in Christ to trust him for even more. Number one, when God has a plan and intends to carry out his plan, God is unstoppable. Wasn't that Gamaliel's main point that he was trying to get across? Now, I don't know that I agree with Gamaliel that every movement that dies out must be from man and every movement that succeeds is obviously from God. I mean, many cults and many false religions have had staying power down through the centuries and exist even to this day. But I think his main point is true, and that is that if God is in this Christianity thing, it would be a big mistake to try and snuff it out because that would be opposing God. And everybody should agree that that's a bad idea, <laughs> to oppose God. Mere human beings are not going to be able to stop God Almighty when he's intent on carrying out his plan. When God has a plan and when God decides it's time to carry out my plan, he will not be deterred. He is unstoppable. And I got to thinking about the, the grand sweep of the biblical story and, and the plans that God had and that God carried out. And I think about his plan to create the universe, right? To put his glory on display in this universe. When God has a plan to do that or when God has a plan to choose one little itty-bitty planet in that universe to showcase his attributes, when God decides to do that, he won't be stopped. He is unstoppable. Whether it's his plan to create human beings in order to reflect his image or to choose one man, Abraham and his descendants, to become his special people or to establish a covenant with those people and set up an elaborate system of sacrifices and offerings in order to keep his holy character right in front of their face every day. When God has a plan and wants to carry it out, he will not be stopped. When God decides, if you read down through the history of Israel, when God decides to raise up leaders on one account and take down others, no one can stop him. And when God unfolds his master plan of redeeming a family, a royal family for himself, not just from the Jews, but from every race and tribe and language and nationality and ethnic background, and when God decides to do that by establishing a new covenant, and when God plans to ratify that new covenant with the innocent shed blood of his son, his son sent to earth as a sacrificial substitute. When God has a plan to redeem a family for himself, all the forces known to man cannot stop that from happening. And when God has a plan to raise his son from the grave after his execution, it doesn't matter who's not in favor of that, it's going to happen, and it did. And when God declares my son is going to return to earth one day to rescue his beloved people and to establish his kingship in its fullness and recreate everything he made originally and restore it to its original state and design when God 
plans to do that. There is no power in the universe that can prevent that from taking place. When God has a plan, he is unstoppable. And so I say thank you, Gamaliel, for reminding us of that truth. And then this, when Jesus decides to build his church in a particular city, that church will be unstoppable. The Sanhedrin lamented, you apostles have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Which I take to mean they were saying this, this city used to be ours. It used to be ours. Now it feels like everywhere we turn, people are talking about Jesus. Jesus this, Jesus that, people healed by Jesus, people saved by Jesus. There are crowds of Jesus people singing about Jesus and singing to Jesus like he's alive or something. Jesus' words are being repeated and declared and memorized and studied and followed all over town. What is our city coming to, they were lamenting. And I hear that and I think, wouldn't it be awesome if things like that were being said about our city that we live in? You know, I got to thinking about Columbus, Ohio. My wife and I love Columbus. We've been here for 32 years now. And uh, it's home. It's home to us. We love our city. And like happened in Jerusalem, we want to see it filled with the teaching of Jesus, don't you? I mean, that just thrills my heart to even think about that. We want to see ungodly businesses shut down and replaced by God-honoring enterprises. And there are such businesses. We want to see all the abortion clinics shut down. Not taking precious human life like that any longer. We want to see all the strip clubs go out of business. We'd love to see the lion's dens go broke. And wouldn't it be great if those locations were all replaced with churches that preach the gospel of Jesus? And we love our Buckeyes, but we like to see all of our Buckeyes saved and loving Jesus and praising and worshiping Jesus. We want to see the needy people in our city blessed by the people of God who are fanning out into the community every week and finding creative ways to love their neighbors and serve them in Jesus' name. And isn't it in your heart like it is in mine that every single resident of Columbus, Ohio would be given the opportunity to hear a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus in a way that they get it and they understand it? And wouldn't it be awesome if that verbal presentation was reinforced by the lifestyle, the life, the lifestyles of God's people, undergirding that and and reinforcing the truth of this way of, of life. We want to see our schools and our local governments so infiltrated by Jesus' people that, that the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus is felt in every classroom, in every government office. And how about all, if all of Jesus' true churches, those who preach and teach and love the gospel of Jesus, were working together under Jesus' direction to bring all of this about? That's what we want to see in our city. But you know, one church can't do it. One congregation won't be enough to accomplish that. 
One reason that the elders of this church, the nine elders of this church, opted for the multi-site strategy back in 2013 was for this reason. Columbus needs many gospel-centered congregations if it's ever going to be filled with the teaching of Jesus. New Life, we want to do our part to flood our city with the good news while working hand-in-hand with other churches that share our DNA, our convictions. And so we're seeking Jesus' leading to start new congregations that are grounded and centered in the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We love what the Lord has been up to in our existing congregations. Like here in Gehanna. I love what God's doing in this community of believers here. So many good things. People coming to know Christ. People being baptized. I love what's happening in and through our small groups right now. We Uh, Joanna Briley spearheaded an initiative called the Shark Tank Outreach Initiative for our small groups, whereby small groups submitted ideas that needed some funding, ideas to serve and bless other people in our community, and some great ideas were were presented. And these things are happening. I love the, the groups that are taking meals and blessing our first responders, those at the police station, at the fire stations. Isn't that cool? Just loving on them in the name of Jesus. There's small groups that are taking on senior citizens and seeking to bless them in very practical ways. One group said, we want to bless people who are in a bad mood. So we're going to go down to the BMV (laughs) and uh, take some gift bags and snacks to the people who are standing in line waiting to get their tags renewed, waiting for 30, 40, 50 minutes or whatever. What a great idea. I love what's going on in this congregation right now. Last couple Sundays, I've been at our Whitehall campus. I've been preaching there and just getting a feel for how Jesus is building his church in that community as well. What, what great things are going on there? I can report to you that God is building his church in Whitehall. I got to meet three uh, young adult men. One's named Jeremy, one's named Adam, the other's named uh, Demario. Jeremy's this big old dude who's got tattoos all over his body and he has what we might call a colorful past. You know what I'm talking about? And, uh, I mean, he, uh, when I was there the first week, he said, Pastor Steve, do you wear rings? I was like, well, I wear a wedding ring. And he said, I got a ring for you. It's a big Jesus ring, big old gold ring. It says Jesus on it. So I, the second week I went back, I wore that ring, and he was all smiles seeing that. He's a cool guy. And I, I looked at him, I said, Jeremy, you're going to be able to reach people for Jesus that I'll never be able to reach. Because of your background, your relationships that you had when you weren't in the way. <laughs> One of those guys is a friend of his named Adam. Adam shares all of those tattoos, and I met Adam last week. He's this tall, slender guy, and and God is is reaching out to Adam, and he's drawing him to Christ, and Adam has put his faith in Jesus. He's going through a divorce. He's got three kids. It's, It's a challenging time for him, but after service, I just laid my hands on Adam's shoulders and prayed for him, and and he said, Pastor Steve, I am so grateful for this church and these people who are supporting me and loving me and showing me the way of Jesus. And then there's DeMario, who's a fiery young African-American guy, and he's got tattoos too. I mean, it's just a thing, I guess, there. But uh, he was following Christ and then fell away, kind of had a relapse back into the old life and the old addictions, but the last three weeks he's been there worshiping, and I got to love on him and hug him and just tell him how good it was to see him again. And He's a young guy who's got potential for Jesus 
for serving Jesus in ways that would, would blow our minds, I think. And we're just, we're saying, God, you know, grab this guy and bring him all the way in. And he's there. And he's hearing the word and he's being loved on by our people there. It's happening. God is at work in that community. And that's why we went in the first place, right? I wanted to update you on how things are going with our next proposed campus, which is going to be out east in Pataskala. And uh, Pastor Brian and his growing team are excited about each of these developments. Just this past Thursday, we finally closed, closed (laughs) on that property, that Harley-Davidson dealership that we entered into contract with at the end of last year. It finally closed this last Thursday, and we now own that. We hope that's going to be our eventual uh, space for worship gatherings and kind of a base of operations for reaching out in the communities of Pataskala and Blacklick and Reynoldsburg and Summit Station out east. Timing-wise, we don't think we're going to be able to start in that space, but in God's timing, we believe we'll eventually move in and use it there. We've, we've already started doing some preliminary work on how we might be able to renovate that facility to serve our purposes. We're looking at the signage there, right on East Broad. So we praise God for that. But it's not really about a building, is it? A building's a means to an end, a tool. We're excited that nearly 30 families have now committed, 30 families from our congregations have committed to being part of that effort. And and really, we're looking for upwards of 100 people who will commit themselves to go and be involved and serve and be a, a significant part in that new ministry. Maybe that's you. Maybe you live out in that area and you would pray and ask Jesus if he would have you link up with that growing nucleus that's going to go to that community and preach the gospel and live out the implications of the gospel in those neighborhoods. Our first two team members of our leadership team have been approved by our elders. We took them through a process and so Chris Travis and Tim Pryby. Two great, solid young men have, uh, are comprising the first part of our leadership team for that, that work there. If you've walked through the lobby lately and took, took a peek over at that thermometer, you've probably noticed that we now have over 50% of our first year's budget and startup funds raised. Really, it's, we're closer to 55% and, and on our way to having all of that raised, hopefully, Lord willing, before we launch out there. Two small groups out east are already going. we got three more planned to start this summer. Pastor Brian's already attending the Pastors Fellowship out in Licking County, getting to know some of the, the works and churches and pastors that are already doing good work out there so we can link up with them. We participated in the National Day of Prayer out there on in the first week of May. Been meeting with local business leaders and government Officials out there working on ways to increase our presence in that community. There's some events going on in Pataskala coming up this summer, and we plan to be involved there. So I tell you all that so you can be praying and asking God to work, asking for his leading, and considering your own involvement, whether that's praying and or giving and or actually committing to be a part of that congregation. And if that's you and and you need more information, then come and talk to me or or talk to Pastor Brian and and find out more. Find out what's going to be involved and get a feel for the vision God is giving us of blessing the the families and the singles who live out in those communities. 
Many of you know we've established 14 standards that must be reached, that must be met before we will launch this new campus. And beginning this fall, we'll keep you posted in the worship folder on progress reports and kind of where we stand with respect to each of those important things. To me, it's not far-fetched to think that sometime in the first part of 2018, there's going to be a new New Life congregation worshiping and ministering out in Pataskala. Really, we're just trying to follow Jesus. We're just trying to catch the wave of what Jesus is up to in that part of our city. We're trying to cooperate with him in every way. Because we know that when Jesus has a plan to build his church in a particular city, that church is going to be unstoppable. And that's the kind of church we want to be a part of. But know this, number three, when God's adversaries, when God's opponents devote themselves to snuffing out the gospel of Jesus, that gospel is just going to spread even more because it too is unstoppable. It is irrepressible. This message that we've been entrusted with cannot be squelched. Yeah, it's offensive to some people, right? Undoubtedly, efforts will be mounted to try and silence us from speaking the true gospel, the true God-centered gospel about Jesus and his sacrifice and the forgiveness that he offers to all who will entrust their lives to him. Our Lord has always had his adversaries, including the adversary who is behind all opposition to the spread of the gospel. Satan, the devil, the accuser, the evil one who hates the Lord and hates his church and hates God's people and hates the gospel and is doing everything he can to suppress it or snuff it out or alter it or change it or tamper with it. But ultimately, he will not succeed. Really, the enemy is just playing a fruitless game of whack-a-mole, right? He tries to beat it down over here and it pops up over here. He beats it over here and it comes up over here. The gospel is irrepressible. It will not be squelched. It will not be snuffed out. The Lord will not allow that. And number four, when gospel-soaked believers resolve in their hearts to obey God above all else, like the apostles did, they will be unstoppable. You know, those first century Christians took their cues from their leaders, their spiritual leaders, the apostles, and we see here in this story that the apostles were resolute, weren't they, in their conviction. They said, no, <laughs> I mean, we hear your order, but we are not going to stop talking to people about Jesus. We can't help, Peter said. We can't help but speak about all that we have seen and heard. We must obey God rather than you men. Throw us in jail? Our God might just send an angel to release us and let us out. But even if he doesn't, we'll just preach in jail. That's what others did. Yeah, go ahead. Beat us with rods if you must. But you know what? Tomorrow morning you're going to find us out on Solomon's portico preaching the good news again. Telling anybody who will listen that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you do manage to silence us, if you do manage to silence us by putting us to death, guess what? Others are going to rise up in our place and continue the ministry because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And know this, if you kill us, 
really you're just going to be ushering us into the presence of our risen and exalted Lord who promised that we will reign with him forever. So really nothing you can do to us can ultimately stop us. So yes, the church of Jesus has always faced challenges, internal challenges from within. And external challenges from without. But, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and with our eyes fixed on our hero, Jesus of, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, the church will continue to march on, will continue to spread his love to our neighbors, and will continue to spread his message of salvation by grace through faith for forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. Amen? When God has a plan, He is unstoppable. That's the message. Will you pray for this? Will you pray? I mean, we take time often to pray for one another individually and our individual needs. We do that sometimes in here. We do it often in our small groups. But, you know, today I want to ask you to pray for your church. To pray for this body of believers. That we would become this. That we would get in on what Jesus is doing in our city and become that kind of faithful, devoted, loyal church to Jesus Christ that he uses to spread his love and his good news. Would you be willing to pray for that? Even these next few moments, I would like to ask you to do that. We don't always do this, and if you're new, um, I apologize in advance, but What I'd like to happen these next few moments is for you to look around and maybe lock eyes with a couple other people. And I'm going to have you kind of cluster together in some little prayer pods all around the room. And pray for this. Pray that we would be the kind of people that Jesus would use to spread his unstoppable gospel. Pray that we'll have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church at this time so that we don't run ahead of Christ, we don't lag behind, we don't veer to the right or to the left, but we, we keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Will you pray for those things?